Well, hey, good morning and welcome to MCC. It's so great to see so many new faces. It's great to see guests who are celebrating baptisms with us this weekend. If you are new to MCC this weekend, thank you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you stop by the new here table, either before the services that you'll stop there on the way out, because I want to know you. Uh, we want to know you. We want to know your name, and we want to encourage you to be back in the weeks ahead. Well, you've seen young Reagan this morning come and receive Jesus Christ as bapti in the baptism. Last night, we saw Claire Higdon come and receive Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior in baptism. We also saw Liam Govert baptized last night. It just keeps going and going and going. Isn't that exciting? It's very exciting. It's great to have Dan back from Colorado. It's great to have Allison with us this morning. We've been praying for you, Allison, for the last several months. And I know your daddy, Lynn, and your mom, Sheila, are so glad to have you in the room with them. We've got James, who had a stroke two days ago, in the back of the room. We got Melissa St. John, who just had hip surgery this week in the room. Isn't it great that people are coming out and... Uh, as we talked last weekend, my friends, we are too blessed to stay home. Uh, we need to come out and we need to be uh, appreciative of what God has done in our lives. It's enough that he gave us Jesus Christ, but the reality that he is with us and that he hears us and that he gives us what we need according to his promises. That's why we come and we worship him every, every opportunity that we have. You know, I'm sure you noticed that it was young Reagan's dad that was baptizing him this morning. Last night, it was Claire's brother that was baptizing her. For Liam Govert, it was his Sunday school teacher or his clubhouse teacher from downstairs that was baptizing him. Last Saturday night, we had Mary Tucker come and, and become a member of our church family. And the reason why she came is because Abdiel and Aaron Dieta are her neighbors, and they invited her months ago to come to church. My friends, never underestimate the influence that you have in the lives around you, beginning with those who sit at your dinner table, to those that you go to school with, to those that you greeted this morning and said, Hello to your influence matters and do not do not believe the lie that your influence does not every one of us has a story and that's what we're going to look at today as we continue in this series turn with me to the book of Daniel. Now, if you're new to looking at your Bible, we're doing a through the Bible read this year, and I would love to talk to you after the service about how to just jump in right where you're at. You don't have to catch up. You can jump in right where we're at, but this week we're in the book of, did I say Daniel again? <laughs> Esther, yes, we're in the book of Esther. So if you come to the center of your Bible, just flop it open. You're going to come to Psalms. It's like 150 chapters long. If you go back towards the beginning, just a couple books, you're going to find Esther, Daniel's the other way. We were there the last two weeks. Sorry for that confusion. But in the book of Esther, Esther's one of the most intriguing books in the Old Testament. It's like a spy novel. It's like a, a romance. It's a thriller with murder involved. It's just a great, great read. But the thing that I want us to take away from it this weekend is I want us to see the influence 
that God allows in the life of a young teenage orphan the influence that she has that saves literally thousands of people when God, not by chance, but when God by his very purpose has her in the perfect position for such a time as this, as her account reads. Now, for those of you that have been tracking with us, Esther's account takes place after that 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Remember under Nebuchadnezzar, he took God's people out of Jerusalem, destroyed the city, took them into Babylon, into captivity. That's where we met Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the last couple of weeks as they took a stand against this King Nebuchadnezzar. Those times have passed. Many of God's people have returned to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the temple. Next week, we're going to talk in Nehemiah about rebuilding the wall. But it's this week, in the middle of this return of God's people, that we find Esther Esther and her cousin who have remained behind in Persia under the rule of a man named Xerxes. We, you can call him Xerxes the Jerxes if you want to because he's, he's a jerk. But they're under the, the king's rule in Persia. So Esther chapter 1, verse 3, let's jump right into this. In the third year of his reign, this is Persian king Xerxes, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. It's kind of like the National Democratic or Republican Convention. I'd say this is more the Democratic because the military leaders of Persia, media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. Verse 4 says that it wasn't just a banquet, but it was a party, right? Six months this party goes on nonstop. Now, that's a party, right? Actually, that's a drunkenness is what that is. But it went on for six months. And at the end of that six months, the king hadn't had enough partying. He extended it another seven days. And in verse 10, it says, On the seventh day, when King Xerxes, the Xerxes, was in high spirit from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti. Now, Vashti was on the other side of the kingdom having her own party with the ladies. And so the king sends word, he sends his servants over, hey, tell the king, a queen, command Vashti actually, don't just ask her, but command her to come over here to put her crown on and to show us her beauty because the Bible says she was lovely to look at. Ladies, don't you just love it when that's the way people know you as lovely to look at. Now, some commentaries suggest that the king was so drunk that he was commanding her to come with only her crown on, nothing else. So you get, get the idea. When the attendants delivered the command, though, verse 12 says she refused. Not only did she refuse, but in doing so, she embarrassed the king. But instead of apologizing for his foolish request, he follows the advice of the men that he has placed around himself, the men of his cabinet, and he has her banished from the kingdom. Now, anybody here ever gets some bad relationship advice, right? There's always those people who can't have a relationship of their own, but they're more than glad to tell you how to do it. 
And in this case, this is just one of those, this is an extra for this weekend, an extra little free lesson. Don't get advice from people whose relationship isn't what you desire to have, right? Don't get, get advice from someone who's doing as bad or worse than you are in your relationship. You're not going to get any good advice from them. And such it was for the king. These guys that he asked their opinion of, the reason why they had suggested that the queen be banished is because they didn't want their wives acting up the same way. If she got away with that, well, then their wives would start. It sounds like a good group of guys, right? No. Well, in chapter two, four years have passed. And I think it's not ironic. <laughs> but over those four years, two years, four years have passed, and King Xerxes realizes his foolishness of his actions. It, it takes the skies a while. People tend to do things when they're drunk that they later regret. Kings are no different. And so once again, the king turns to his advisors to come up with a plan. You remember in Persia that when the king made an edict, when he banished her, that, that's for good. There's no going back and changing that. So he called his advisors in. I miss the queen. I want a queen. What are we going to do? And the same group of numbskulls, they, this is their solution. Let's have a beauty contest, and the winner will be queen, right? The fair's in town. Let's just take the fair queen, and we're going to make her queen. Verse 4 says, this advice appealed to the king. Of course it did. And he followed it. And so the search is on. Verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, who had been carried into exile. Here's the history, right? Who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And Mordecai has a cousin, the cousin is named Hadessa, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl was also known as Esther. And she, too, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Esther's an orphan. Esther is living in a foreign neighborhood, right? She is not like the people in the neighborhood that she is living. She is a Jew. They are not. There was prejudice against her. There was the threat of death. And so Mordecai had instructed her, listen, listen, Esther, don't let people know about your faith. Don't let people know about your background, your, your nationality, why? Because these people, these people hate us. But she couldn't hide her beauty. And it wasn't long and she began progressing through this beauty contest, if you will, that was a year long. She began progressing and, and the Bible tells us there was no competition. That Esther was soon chosen out of the thousands of young virgins that were in competition to become queen. The king places the crown on her head, and of course he throws another huge party. Who knows how long that lasted? But he proclaimed that day a national holiday. It's kind of like the romance we, we find in Cinderella, or if you were like me in the 80s, pretty, pretty woman. Only this story is about to take a turn. And what happens next 
many in this world, maybe some of you in this room, would want to strike it up to coincidence or chance. But I want you to know that it is anything but coincidence or chance. But here's the first takeaway when it comes to influence, and that is we either see our life as a set of coincidences, the things around us is just being things that just happen to us, or we see them, and this is the perspective we're to have as Christ followers, as very strategically placed opportunities that are given to us, that are allowed for us by God. See, God never wastes a person's experience, good and bad. God never wastes it. So don't underestimate the value of your own journey and the influence that journey can have on the people around you. When I first came to Memphis almost 18 years ago, there was a group of I think six ladies, the lead senior lady in the group, she drove a large maroon Mercury marquee. Those were big cars. You'd get about 15 kids in that car. But these ladies, there's always five or six of them, and they always were together. And so after Sunday morning church, that wasn't enough. If I was speaking at a revival or if they were going to a fifth Sunday rally, they would all pile in that car, and they loved following the preacher around or taking me along and going and visiting these other churches on Sunday night. That was back when you had Sunday night church. But they were the most awesome senior ladies that I have ever met. They were so special, their kindness. They were always kind. They were never judgmental. I mean, they could have judged me. I was a little rough when I first started here. That's probably an understatement. I came angry and bitter at the church. Now, that's not a good combination to be a preacher in a small church. But they were always so forgiving and always so encouraging. And I just couldn't quite understand it because that was so unusual, frankly, for that, that generation. And it wasn't until they started passing away. The, the first died within the first year. I used to sit on Catherine's back porch and, and write my sermons. And, and she was one of the first that went into the hospital just to, have, just to have a heart procedure. And she didn't get to come home. And I, I remember leaning over her bed, praying with her, and she whispered in my ear, Dave, I'm not coming home. <laughs> and, and it was the saddest thing ever. And, and as each one of those passed, I began to understand why their influence was so significant in my life. And it was because they each had a story. They each had a history. Catherine, she couldn't have children of her own. And so she loved on. She influenced the children that God gave her influence over here in the church. In fact, she was the number one cheerleader when we started bringing in community youth that had not been churched she was right there encouraging the way. Another had been divorced. And so, so many have experienced divorce, but, but you wouldn't know that about her. She had experienced so much pain through her relationship. Another one of the ladies, fine church lady, whose husband was a church man himself who abused her physically. 
You see, each one of them had a story. And it wasn't long before I understood that they didn't let their situation hold them back. They never allowed any of those experiences to go to waste. They let God use it all. And their influence was not only significant to me, but it is significant to this ministry today because I wouldn't be the preacher that I am today. We wouldn't be the church that we are today if it were not for those ladies being real and letting God use their lives and their experiences. Now, I want you to think about Esther's life up until this point. She's orphaned. She's a true orphan in a country not her own. She's a Jew. She's a believer in God where the people around her were not. Her foster dad is her her cousin, and you think, well, that's no big deal. She's a teenager, and he's in his 80s. She has natural beauty. You say, well, what's wrong with that? That's a plus, isn't it? Not always. You know, some of the most self-conscious young ladies that I have met are those who have amazing physical beauty. It's why, it's why they settle so often for such losers in their life. They, they just can't see themselves as that, unless they've got someone in their corner encouraging them. How do you see your life? How do you see the experiences that God has allowed in your life? Do you see your life as a set of just random coincidences? Or are you paying attention and starting to see that maybe, just maybe, those things that you've chosen on your own, good and bad, those things that have happened at the hands of other people, that they just might, that they might, just might be something that God can use to influence another person. Is it possible that what you think is your heaviest burden has been given to you for a purpose way beyond you, a purpose that you just don't see at the moment? In verse 21, Mordecai stayed close. He stayed right out at the city gate. Anyone going in and out of the palace, he saw who they were. That was the best that he could do at keeping an eye on Esther. One day, he overhears two disgruntled employees of the king, and they are plotting to take the king out, not, not to dinner, but they're plotting to kill him, take over. And so Mordecai sends word to Esther. Esther tells the palace guards. The palace guards investigate it. Chapter 2, verse 23 says, when the report was investigated and found to be true, those two officials were hanged on the gallows. And all of this was recorded in the book of the annals, the minutes, the chronicles as they were, so that someday Mordecai could be recognized. You know, isn't that the case? Sometimes the good things in our life, they just don't get recognized right away. They're certainly written down. We remember them. We know them. But, but we really haven't seen any good come from those things. And, and so we tend to just kind of think, well, it's never going to be recognized. Chapter 3. Soon after the coronation of Queen Esther, we're introduced to the villain of the account. Every account has a villain, and in this case, 
King Xerxes promotes one of his officials, a guy named Haman. Haman. And what's many times true of people who are quickly elevated, especially when there's no merit, but when they are elevated to a position of authority, it goes to their head. And very quickly, we see just what kind of man Haman is. Verse 2 of chapter 3. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. So every day when Haman was going in and out to work at the palace, what did people do? They would bow down to him. One, because the king commanded it. And Haman loved that. He loved it. But the end of verse 2 says, but Mordecai, remember Mordecai. Mordecai's a Jew. Mordecai's Esther's cousin. He would not kneel down or pay Haman Honor. Verse 5 says that when Haman saw Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, what did it do? It enraged Haman. How dare he not bow down to me? And having learned who Mordecai's people were, the Jews, having learned that they were foreigners in this land of his, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom. Haman was a Hitler. And so Haman put the plan together. And not only did he put a plan together, but he presented it to King Xerxes. He said, look, King, there are some people in this land that don't deserve to be here, and I want your permission. I want your permission to just get rid of them all. In fact, I'm going to donate 10,000 talents of silver, uh, silver to your war chest if you'll just let me wipe them all out. And by the way, King, here's an executive order. I've already written it up for you. And King Xerxes says, keep the money I'll sign it. And so he signs it. Haman sees to it that it's dispatched throughout the kingdom. Chapter 4. Now, I know we're moving, but you have to get through all of this to get to the point here. In chapter 4, Mordecai sees the edict before Esther hears about it. And he's one of those guys. I think it was just part of coming up in the culture that he was in. But it says that he put on sackcloth. <laughs> Now, now, what sackcloth was was just, just an outside indicator that somebody's tore up inside, that they're grieving, that they're mourning. You, you know those people, right? I mean, they, they just wear it out. Look at me. I'm upset. And it worked because people saw him acting that way. They go to the queen and give word to, to Esther that her cousin's out there just messed up. She sends word to him, says, what's going on and she said uh, and uh, he says listen listen Esther more uh, uh, what's his name what's his name Haman Haman has put together this decree and we're in trouble every Jew is going to be done away with and he asks her this request will you please go before the king now I want you to hear this because it's a big ask Will you go before the king and beg for mercy in the lives of your people? Now we're finally getting someplace. In verse 11, this is Esther's reply. I bet it's familiar to you. She said, listen, Mordecai, all the king's people know, everybody in the palace knows that if any man approaches the king without an invitation, including me, the queen, 
Anyone that approaches him without an invitation, the king has but one law, and that is that they be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend his golden scepter to the person. And if he extends that golden scepter, he will spare the person's life. But listen, 30 days have passed since even I was invited before the king. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, listen to his answer. Esther, don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. (laughs) This is serious, Esther. Your life is on the line more than you realize. In fact, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews is gonna rise up from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And here it is. And who knows but that you have come to royal position, say it with me, church, for such a time as this. Esther, you hear what he's saying? Esther, is it just possible? Have you thought that maybe your experiences in life, good and bad, aren't just about you? I I, I mean, what? Why would Vashti not go to the king? Have you ever thought about that just being more than a coincidence? Why would you? I mean, Esther, you're lovely in form and feature. That's a cousin's way of saying you're a hottie. Yes, you're beautiful, but, but you being chosen out of thousands of other women who are a lot looser, <laughs> to be quite frank, why would you be chosen? Is it possible that you've been elevated from being an orphan to the first lady for for something more than just you? Is it possible that there's a purpose for this? What do you think? What do you think about the things that have happened in your life? Like we said, the things that have happened at the hands of others, the choices that you've made that have allowed you to see and experience things that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Maybe you would, but you know what I mean. Is it possible that the cancer that God has allowed you to have strike your life, that it's more than than just about you being miserable or waiting and praying for an answer? The infertility that you've experienced, and Lord knows that is just one of the most agonizing things that a couple can face. Is it just possible that that infertility has been allowed so that you would be open to adoption or to foster care? Is it possible that these things have very little to do with you, but a whole lot to do with what God wants accomplished through you? You see, influence... Influence exists because God allows it. God is the one who grants us influence. And that means that we need to look beyond ourselves. And we need to use that influence. We need to use those experiences and put his kingdom first. And that's scary sometimes. And as we're about to see with Esther, as we already see, it is risky Sometimes Esther's faced with a decision. She knows that she can't just waltz right in there on her own. She knows that this is beyond her. What would you do? First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. 
And that's what Esther shows us in verse 16. Esther tells Mordecai, go, get everybody together. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. Me and my maids, we will fast as you do. And when this is done, I'll go to the king, even if it's against the law. And if I die, well, I die. And so it says Mordecai went away and did, carried out all of Esther's instructions. Now notice this isn't a I might lose my friendship type of risk. It's more than just risking your job or your status in a club. But this is life or death. And the other thing that I want you to notice is that instead of getting angry, anybody get angry when you feel like you have a choice in front of you and you know what you ought to do, but it just ticks you off? That not only are you dealing with cancer in your life, but now you have to deal with a wayward child. Or not only are you dealing with financial challenges, but now your grandparents have passed away. And then someone else, I mean, it just stacks up. You have a stroke two months ago, you have another one this month. You ever feel that way? So you get angry? You feel like you're being forced into something you don't want to do? What about getting drunk? Anybody ever just go tie one on because, well, things are just that tough. So I'm going to get drunk or I'm going to go back to this addiction because after all, it's an illness, right? It's not a choice. I can't help myself. So we go and we take more prescriptions or prescriptions that don't belong to us. Maybe we just go to bed. You just go to bed and say, you know what, I, I can't deal with this. Who cares if my family needs me? Who cares what else is going on? I'm just going to go to bed, and maybe in three weeks when I get out of bed, it'll all be better. Praying and fasting went hand in hand, and this is what Esther does. Instead of doing all of those things, which I guarantee you as a queen she could do, she could hide out forever if she wanted to, she seeks God. It's the same thing that Jesus did when he was in the wilderness, right? When he was in the wilderness, he didn't eat, but he prayed, he existed, he fought the temptation, how? By the word of God. In chapter five, after this time of fasting, Esther takes her next step and she goes into the presence of the king. And, and, and I can see this so clear because it reminds me of what it's gonna be like to go into heaven. And down at the end of the hall, there's the throne room. And for her, it's King Xerxes. And she's nervous about it. But as she goes down that hallway, it says that their eyes meet. It was a moment of truth. And just as she paused for a moment, he lowered his golden scepter showing that he approved of her presence. And she walked up and touched the end of that scepter. Verse two of chapter five says, when he saw her, he was pleased with her, held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Verse three, the king says, Esther, what is it that you want? What's your request? You can ask for anything. A lot of us guys do that, don't we, with our queens. Just whatever you want, babe. He says, even up to half the kingdom you can have. She plays it so smart. 
She says, oh, king, could we just have Haman over to dinner tonight? And you think, what's she going to do, poison him? Oh, it's even better than that. Can we have Haman over? And the king says, consider it done. And that night at dinner, there's Haman, there's the queen, there's the king. Remember, Haman's the one who's had this order sent out, right? He's the one who wants to kill all of her relatives, all of the other believers. And there's Haman, and things just didn't seem right to her. And so she held off when the king asked, now what is it, Esther, that you want? She says, listen, if you'll have Haman over tomorrow night, I'll tell you. And so, of course, he granted the request. Philippians 4, 5 reminds us, don't be anxious, but by prayer and petition, offer your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and guard your mind. You see what she's doing? She's not jumping ahead. She's not getting ahead of God or ahead of herself. But she's trusting. The time just didn't seem right. Verse 9 says, Haman went home from dinner that night. He was feeling good about himself, right? He'd been eating dinner with the king and the queen just where he belonged, right there at the king's table. But on his way out the front door, who does he run into? Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai's always sitting at the gate. And he's all puffed up, but Mordecai just looks at him and, and basically gives him the bird, right? He, he doesn't stand up. He doesn't bow down before him. He's just kind of like, up yours, Haman. And Haman is ripped. Haman's ripped. Haman goes home. He calls all of his friends. He calls all of his neighbors. He says, bring your hammer, bring your nails. I've got the lumber. And it says they began and they worked all that night building a gallows. Now, there's a little misunderstanding here in the interpretation of the Hebrew. The gallows are actually gallows that lop your head off. But in the 1600s or whenever the King James Version was translated, they didn't want to offend anybody by being so gruesome. I don't mind offending people. This wasn't just a, something to hang you on a noose. This was a gallows. They want to chop his head off. And that's what they're building out in Haman's backyard. Chapter 6 says that night Xerxes couldn't sleep. I don't know if it was the hammering going on down the street at Haman's house, but whatever it is, he couldn't sleep. And when kings can't sleep, what do they do? Well, there's a lot of things they could ask for, but he asked for the Chronicles. His bedtime story was stories about himself. He wanted to hear all about his reign, and ironically, right, just by chance, whose story do they read about? They read about the story of the man named Mordecai who overheard a group of two men at the gate that were going to take the king out, and Mordecai sent word and he was to be recognized. Remember how sometimes good things aren't recognized at first? And so the king says, well, well, what has been done for this man? And they said, well, it kind of got overlooked, king. Nothing's been done. Well, it's already morning, and about that time, Haman shows up at the king's front door. He wants to know who's out there. They said, Haman. Haman is there to do what? Haman is there to ask permission to cut Mordecai's head off on the gallows that he's been building. And so as Haman comes into the, the court of the king, before the, Haman gets an opportunity to speak, the king says, hey, Haman, what should be done for a man that the king desires to honor? What should be done for a man who saves the king's 
life. And, and Haman was quick to answer because he thought that this was for him. And so Haman said, oh, king, just grab one of your robes. It doesn't have to be the one that you're wearing, but maybe the one you wore yesterday. And, and drape that around this man. Put him up on your finest steed, your finest horse, and then have someone lead him through the community. And as everybody comes out to see this man being honored, have them say this is what the king does to, to honor the one that he appreciates and that he respects. And I love what happens next. Because in verse, in, in verse uh, I've lost track of where I'm at. Verse what? In verse 10, thank you. In verse 10, the king looks right at Haman and says, go do that for Mordecai. Don't, don't you love it, right? It's not for you, Haman, this is for Mordecai. And so just completely disgusted, having his bubble burst, he goes out, and in chapter seven, after doing all of this for Mordecai, Haman comes that night to dinner with the king and queen. This is the second night and at the dinner table, the king asks Esther there in chapter seven, what is your request? And in verse three, Esther drops the dime on Haman. She said, oh king, if you would grant this request to save the life of the queen and her people. King, if it had only been that we were gonna become slaves, I would not even bother you with this. But because our life is being threatened. I come before you and I ask you that you would spare our lives. And, and the king is just incensed. Who would go after the queen like this? And so he asks, who is this? And she points the finger at Haman. And he said, she says, he's, he's the one. Verse nine, as soon as this comes out, as soon as this comes out, it says that the king got up, he left the room, Haman gets up to go over and plead for his life to the queen. He trips on the Persian rug that the king has there right there in Persia, the Persian rug. He trips on that and he falls right on Esther. About that time, king comes back in and sees Haman laid out on top of the queen. He is ripped. If he wasn't ripped before, he's ripped now. He says, would you even molest the queen in the king's presence? And no sooner were those words out of his mouth. Verse 9 says that one of the attendants who had been standing in the room takes a bag, puts it over Haman's head. And he says, hey, king, I hate to interrupt you. It's all going so well. But on my way into work this morning, I went past Haman's house. And guess what he had going up in his backyard? Yeah, it was a gallows. And so I stopped at the house and I said, who's the gallows for? And they said that it's for Mordecai, the one that you just honored who saved your life. And he just kind of scratches his head and he looks at the king, he looks at Haman, he said, it's a shame to let those go to waste, isn't it, king? In verse 10, the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman, actually they cut his head off on the gallows, he had prepared for Mordecai. Now listen, chapter eight and chapter nine. Chapter eight tells us that Esther came back to the king, remember because the command that he had signed off was irrevocable, the Jews were still in danger even though Haman was gone. She goes to the king and says, oh king, would, would you be willing? And he said, anything babe, whatever you want. And so a royal decree was sent out 
that the Jews could defend themselves against anyone who attacked them. And in chapter 9, it says that no one could stand against Esther's people because of that. They were spared. And not only were they spared, but it says that Mordecai was elevated to Haman's position. He got Haman's house. He got Haman's property. He got his role. And just like the last two weeks with Daniel and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the week before, we look at this sequence of events and we say, that's just impossible. Oh, it's impossible if you believe that your life is based on random chance and coincidence. But my friends, it happens every day in your life and mine who believe that the situations that come into our life are there by God's control, by his sovereignty, that his plan is ruled not by chance, but by his will and by his power. And so my question for you this weekend is, what could God do with your story? What can God do with your influence if only you would take that risk? If only you would recognize that he has allowed that for such a time as this. See, here's the challenge. We have to surrender our story and influence to the king. And we shouldn't put that off. If you've not surrendered your life, if you've not surrendered your story, if you've not surrendered your circumstances to the king of kings, then do it today. Do it today. Why? Because he won't waste it. He won't waste it. And why won't he waste it? Listen. Because people's lives depend on it. And you say, what do you mean? I'm talking about these sweet kids that have been baptized because of the influence of people just like you, parents like you. Their life's depending on it. The people that you work with who don't know God who are going to face cancer, who are going to face the same hardships, the loss of a loved one, just like you have experienced. Their life, their willingness to persevere and to trust God instead of giving up and going on a drunk or going to bed for three years, it's dependent on that. Those of you who are struggling right now with your own kids, do you not realize that you may not be able to change that kid right now, but you can impact the lives of people around you, even a life on the other side of the world that more than likely will be used to influence your son or daughter or your grandchild today? Your influence, your experiences, they matter. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for the influence that we have seen today. Oh, Esther's story's great. But Father, it's a story that's being played out right now in the lives of countless people right here in this room who have used the cancer that's been allowed to come in their life, the infertility, the brokenness that has come because of drugs or or alcohol or other influences that 
that family members or friends or maybe even in their life they've let come in. The Father, now they say, only you. (coughs) The only risk I'm going to take is for you, God, in sharing my experience and how you have rescued me how you have fulfilled your promises to me, even though my cancer returns. You've never left me. You've never failed me. God, I pray for the people in this room and the hundreds that are listening to us online this weekend that, that God, we would surrender these things to you, that we would trust you, that we would believe what the enemy tries to get us to deny and that is that you can use it all and you can use it all today and so God have your way have your way in our life have your way in our influence have your way in our choices that that influence so many that we've yet to even meet We trust you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.